You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. My name is Marshall, one of the pastors here. Um, glad to have you this morning. If you're a guest, um, we just reiterate the welcome that, that Reed gave you. Um, really do hope that um, this morning you would um, experience the, the familial nature of the church before sort of the event side of things. And so I uh, would encourage you to take any one of those steps of connecting that uh, were just put before you. Um, would love to meet you in any one of those contexts. So um, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. We've got, we've got kind of a bit of work to do. We're going to be looking not only at Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, but we'll also be kind of looking at a little bit of First Peter as well. Um, but before we do that, let me just remind us, uh, and I've said this every week, but I think it's it's that important that it needs to be said every week. So um, we're walking through a series where we're talking through um, essentially our common hopes and dreams. We're talking about the vision um, of Sojourn. And uh, while I think that that is a good thing, a fruitful thing, a beneficial thing, we must be reminded um, that although it is those things, there is a danger in it becoming something that we don't want it to be, which is essentially uh, sort of a, a collective stroking of the Sojourn ego, right? Um, now, we do do things a certain way here. We believe that the, the Lord has called us into that faithfully. We believe that the Lord calls um, other places and peoples to maybe operate somewhat differently, right? So here's what we, we've said. Uh, we've used just kind of one sentence um, to kind of describe what we're talking about when we, when we talk about the way we hold um, our, our vision. Uh, we we want to say that what we do at Sojourn is, is not the way um, but it is a way, and it is our way. So in that sentence, or I guess it might be one or two sentences, um, what, what you'll notice is that there's, there's a humility in saying that, look, this is, this is not how every church in every context everywhere should do it, right? So we're not that, um, uh, that sort of uh, prideful um, in sort of our, our own intelligence or ability to discern the will of God. But there's also um, a, a faithful consistency uh, and, and belief in uh, what we think the Lord is, has called us to do here when we say that it is our way. We're going to own it, um, and we're going to do what we believe the Lord has called us to do uh, until He tells us to stop. Um, and so just want you to know that, especially if you're a guest this morning, don't want th- that to come off the wrong way. We want to be self-aware about who we are, and we want to play our role faithfully in the city for the glory of God, knowing that it's going to take hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of other churches doing different things in different ways, all for the glory of God uh, in our city. So with that said, today we're going to talk about um, this idea that, that we are sojourners. So uh, the first week we talked about this fact that the fact that we are saints, right? That we're saints, right? And that we're saints together. So we, we're, we're not just saints individually, but we're saints together for the glory of God. Um, then last week we talked about the fact that we're family, that we're adopted into one family now and forever, and today we'll talk about this idea that we are sojourners, that we are sojourners sent by God for the peace of the city. Uh, So let me pray and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Again, we thank you for the opportunity uh, to be gathered together um, with your people. And I pray, Father, that we would be reminded this morning uh, that because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, Lord, we sit in a fellowship of those who are called brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, that our unity does not consist in uh, the clothes that we wear, the certain social space that we occupy, uh, the salary that we make, 
uh, or our outward physical appearance, Father, our unity um, is forged in the body and blood of Jesus Christ given on our behalf so that we might experience the redemption that he has secured for us in, in his work. Uh, so, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that by your spirit, you would communicate to us right now, Lord, that through your word, uh, you would speak to us, Lord, that you would um, show us what it looks like, uh, Father, to walk more faithfully uh, and more aware uh, of what it is that you have done on our behalf. Uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump in, read, uh, read for you from Jeremiah 29, uh, verses 4 through 7, this chapter, uh, more famously known for verse 11. I promise we will get there and we will address that. Um, but here's essentially what's happening in Jeremiah. You have um, Israel, right, the, the people of God, this nation uh, to whom God has said, you will be my people and I will be your God. This nation uh, that belongs to God is now in exile. Um, so they're no longer in Jerusalem. They've been conquered um, by Babylon, and they have now been brought back to live um, among the Babylonians. So they have fallen into the hands of this kingdom and, and their king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and in this particular portion of Jeremiah, we're reading a letter uh, from the Lord uh, that Jeremiah pens uh, to this people that are living in exile together. And he's writing this letter, and, and God is giving these words to the people of Israel um, in order to assure them that God has not abandoned them, nor has he forgotten his original and intended purpose for them, right? Which, as we've said throughout the whole series, is simply this, that God would have for himself a people not only to whom he reveals himself, but through whom he then reveals himself to the world. And so that's where we're at when we jump into Jeremiah 29, verse 4. And it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so this idea that we are exiles or sojourners, those, those two words will be used together in 1 Peter 2 when we go there in just a second is a core part of the identity of the people of God at this moment in history. But what I'm going to make the argument for is that that is something that now characterizes all of the people of God at all times, that we are exiles, right? Israel belonged to God and to the land that he gave them, but they are subject now to Nebuchadnezzar's rule and living in the land of Babylon. And we see this happen not just at this moment in Israel's history, but we see it happen regularly regularly throughout their history. And so this is how the church is then described in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so if you want to turn there, just keep a finger there. We're going to kind of be flipping back and forth a little bit. Um, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, and he's talking, right, again about the church, God's people. And this is what Peter says. He says in verse 9 of chapter 2, you, you all, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the church is God's people, right? What we see here in Peter is not, is not just language of convenience, it is purposeful language in that Peter is connecting the people of Israel and the church 
right? Remember, um, just a, a, a short couple of weeks ago, we read in 1 Peter um, that it is through the work of Jesus that now we are adopted into God's family, and thus we are Abraham's offspring. So we belong now, right, to this people of God. And so here's, here's what I would say, just very briefly. If we belong to God, and because we belong to Him, we belong to His country, His land, then that means that our home is not here. That our home is there, which is why in verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. We simply don't belong here or anywhere, for that matter, that in which the full measure of God's presence and peace is there. We simply don't belong in that place. We have another home. This is the idea that's communicated in Jeremiah 29, but it's also communicated in 1 Peter chapter 2, this idea that you and I, by virtue of being the people of God, are exiles. We're living in a foreign land under a foreign rule, and that there's a unique way in which that is experienced for us. Now, I think for many of us, that's kind of a, a foreign idea, right? This idea that we would look at where we live right now, the United States of America, and that we would think, this is not my home, or that this is a place in which I am living in exile. And the reason that that's a foreign idea is because for much of our lives in this particular country, we have not experienced what most other Christians experience in their exile. What I mean by that is that life in the United States has not felt like exile. Somewhere along the line, Christianity or Christendom and the American dream married and they created a situation in which it does not cost us much to be considered the people of God. But we don't have time to, to dwell here uh, for very long, but I, I do believe that we in this country are on the path to exile. That the beliefs of the people of God, that the way the people of God chooses to conduct their lives, the way that our obedience to God is beginning to be perceived is less virtuous and now seen as more detrimental to the society around us. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing because we will be less and less tempted to claim America and the American dream as our first allegiance and our greatest hope. It's simply too obvious scripturally, even just from these two brief, short samples, that to follow God is to be exiled from the majority, is to be cast out, because that is so often what obedience to the Lord requires. That is so often what takes place in the Word of God when people are faithful to what He has commanded them to do. They are often cast out, that's because God's people are an exilic people. They are a people in exile. And so we are being given an opportunity to be faithful during that exile. But here's the thing. We're not just exiles, right? And we're not exiles randomly. We're not exiles just for no reason. We're exiles with purpose, right? We are exiles sent by God. That's what's the most fascinating thing about this verse in, in verse 4 of chapter 29 of Jeremiah. In that it, it says, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles, then catch this, whom I, that is God, have sent into exile. So the Lord of Israel, the God of all creation, has sent Israel into exile. That's not the language of mistake. That's not the language of, oh, this is what happened circumstantially, and so God's equipping them to live within the circumstance. No, it denotes purpose. It says that this is God that is acting in this, in sending this people into exile. There's a clarity of thinking that is obvious in the language that is used here. Whom I have sent into exile. And you know what? The, the same is true of the church, right? We just read in 1 Peter um, chapter 2, in verse 9, where it told us that we're chosen by God, and, and because we are chosen by God, because we are this people for His own possession, verse 11 tells us that now He urges us as sojourn and exile, sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what's he saying? He's saying that we've been sent, that there's a purpose with which we've been delivered over into exile. That we're sent by God into what is now a foreign land to us to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, um, let's let's. Focus in on that word proclaim for a moment from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Because it's not simply a, a word that's being spoken, right? When we translate the Greek over, it denotes a bit more than just speech. In fact, it also involves and connotes action, right? So what's 1 Peter telling us? He's telling us that both with our mouths and with our lives, we are to make the excellencies of God, God's moral virtue, God's great um, redemption and salvation. This knowledge that He has redeemed us and called us His own, that we are to proclaim those things, both in word and in deed. And so as God's people, not just here and now, but always from the beginning, as God's people, part of our identity is that we are sent. We're a sent people by God. All throughout the scriptures and all throughout church history, we see this play itself out, but it's not only for the spiritually elite, right? Notice that there's no qualifying statement when it comes to their sentness. It doesn't say I sent the best and brightest. It doesn't say I sent the most formally educated. It doesn't say I sent the people with the most obvious spiritual gifting. It says that all of us have been sent, that collectively together we have been sent sent by God into exile. That each and every Christian is sent to each and every location in which they live. And that they are sent there, not by their desires, but by God's own hand. In fact, Jesus himself said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. This is our fundamental purpose, right? The worship of God, the proclamation of His virtue, the proclamation of His worth in view of the public to whom God has sent us. That's it. That's your purpose. 
I just saved you 300 pages of reading and $12. That is the purpose-driven life. It is to be the people of God, worshiping God in the view of the public to whom God has sent us. That's it. That is what your life consists of now, plain and simple. I love that. I love that it's that simple. So we're exiles, but we're not exiles randomly. We're exiles that are sent by God, and we're sent by God for what? We're sent by God for the peace of the city. Let's continue reading in Jeremiah 29. Um, We read verse 4, which told us that we're sent as exiles by God. Read verse 7. It says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, the word welfare um, is the Hebrew word shalom, which is, a, which is an all-encompassing word. So it's not, it's not simply um, welfare in terms of uh, financial wel- welfare. It's not uh, simply in terms of uh, any other qualifier that you could put in front of that. It's, it's comprehensive. When it says shalom, it's covering all aspects of peace, and of plenty. So it tells us that, that God has sent His people into exile to seek the welfare, the shalom, the peace and plenty of the city, for in its peace and plenty they will find their peace and plenty. And I just want to be very clear before we move on uh, to, to other points that, that I, I feel like need to be made, that when God sends the people for the peace and plenty of the city. He's not sending them for the peace and plenty of one part of the city, of one constituency in the city, of one social part of the city, of one demographic. He didn't just send people for the welfare of the people that look like you, but the welfare of the city as a whole. So let's jump back to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I know we're going back and forth, which might, might get a little confusing. But again, this is helpful in helping us see the unity of what it is that God has always been about doing. That from the Old Testament to the New Testament to you and I right now, God has always intended to have for himself a people, a people to whom he reveals himself and through whom he reveals himself to the world. And so this is what First Peter chapter 2, verses 10, 11, and 12 say. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so again, we read this earlier. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do what? Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct honorable. Do good deeds so that those outside of the faith might rejoice and glorify God on the day of visitation. That when judgment comes, people would be added to this family of God, this people of God. So the church is an exiled people, much like the people of Israel in Jeremiah to Babylon. We're an exiled people sent by God for the peace of the city, sent so that those who have not received mercy would receive mercy and experience the peace and plenty of what Jesus calls life abundant in Him. So the question is, how do we do that, right? How do we seek 
the welfare of the city? How do we seek the shalom of the city, the peace and plenty of the city? Well, I think that 1 Peter gives us principles, and I think that Jeremiah 29 gives us practicals, and so let's just, let's talk through them, right? Principally, what does 1 Peter tell us to do? It tells us to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord, that that people will experience the abundant life of Jesus when we proclaim His value and worth. Not just with our words, but with our deeds, right? Proclaim being that all-encompassing word. We proclaim His excellencies. What else do we do? We abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, what is that about? Is that simply about you making sure that you look good so that people go, oh, he's very morally virtuous? No, 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 no. No, we abstain from the passions of the flesh because the passions of the flesh wage war against our soul, which means that it's the passions of the flesh that are waging war against your experience of shalom that you will not experience the abundant life in Christ if you are choosing things other than Christ to satisfy you. You won't. And so we abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's one of the ways, in fact, that we proclaim His excellencies. We say God is more valuable than that passion. God is more valuable than that thing. So we proclaim His excellencies, we do so in part by abstaining from the passions of the flesh and, right, so that's the negative, but here's the positive, by keeping our conduct honorable. We walk with integrity. We walk in the holiness and in the virtue of God, consistent as God is consistent, faithful as God is faithful. And we do so, why? That they may see your good deeds glorify God on the day of visitation. Quite simply, sent, a sent people into exile underneath the rule of another in a foreign land so that people might experience the life abundant available to them in Christ. But so practically, what does that look like, right? This is where Jeremiah is instructive for us, helpful. This is what Jeremiah says, and I'm going to start in verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. There's a few things practically that that we're called to do that are for the welfare, for the shalom, for the peace and plenty of the city The first thing he tells them to do in verse 5 is what? Move in. Move in. Build houses there. Right? Live among the peoples. Right? He doesn't say, hey, look, I cut out this really nice corner of Babylon for you um, where you really won't have to interact with anybody that's not like you, um, and you just got to kind of stick it out in your little fortress there. Right? It's not at all what he says. Move into Babylon. Build your home there. Live among those peoples. What's the second thing he tells them to do? Build houses and live in them. Here's the the second part of the verse. Plant gardens and eat their produce. What's he telling them? He's saying not only move in, but move in, and when you move in, cultivate before you consume. Bring something to the city's good, right? Cultivate. Be a part of, 
of making that place a better place, cultivate before you consume. So it's not about what Babylon can provide for you, which, which just so you all know, like Babylon probably would have been an amazing place to them, aesthetically speaking, and in terms of what the city could provide. Jerusalem was a great city, make no mistake, but the Babylonian Empire was significant. Significant in wealth, significant in what it had. And yet God is saying, look, I I didn't send you to Babylon so that you could just consume all of Babylon's goods and enjoy it for a season until you're satisfied and then move out. He said, I'm sending you to build your home there. I'm sending you there to cultivate before you consume, to consider what it would look like to offer the city what it is you have before you take from the city what it would offer to you. Because here's the secret, what you have to offer is infinitely more valuable than anything that is present there. So he says, we move in, we cultivate rather than we consume. What else? Take wives and have sons and daughters, right? What does he say? We raise families there. Raise your families in the midst of the Babylonians. Is it foreign? Yes. Do they teach evolution rather than creation? I don't know. Maybe. Is it going to be okay? Yes. Raise your families in Babylon. It says, don't be afraid of any potential hostility, intellectual or physical. Don't be afraid of the hostility there. Raise your family. And then in verse 7, it says this, but, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And here's the last thing that he exhorts us to do, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So what does he say? This is so ordinary, right? I mean, I, I, you, you guys maybe don't run in some of the, the circles that I do because I, I'm talking to pastors and things like that in different parts of the country and even in different parts of our city, maybe that are um, a little bit further outside of sort of, sort of Houston proper, right? And everyone's kind of like, oh, urban, urban ministry, ministry inside the city. What does that look like? What's the secret? What's the ticket? You know, what's the strategy? Like, it's, it's living an ordinary life. That's all we're being called to do here to move in, to make our home there, to raise our families, to cultivate the neighborhood rather than simply consume from it, and to pray for it, to pray to the Lord on its behalf. You see, if we pray more for ourselves and our problems than our city, then we're not living the sent lives that we've been given. We are sent sojourners sent exiles by God for the peace of the city, for the shalom of the city. And so I've kind of hit on this, I've kind of hit on this a, a couple of times, well, in, in both of the sermons, right? If this is what God is, is calling us into, as His sent peoples, as His sent sojourners, His sent exiles. What does that mean? That means that physical proximity and longevity both matter. They're both important to our ministry in the city. Proximity matters, right? Because the Israelites are sent to Babylon, not the city next to it. There's an implied saturation there. He doesn't send them to the comfortable enclaves 
or the suburbs of Babylon. Not that we don't send people to suburbs, we do, right? But proximity matters. Where God sends us matters. Location matters. Why is that? Well, 1 Peter tells us that the Gentiles are only going to see how we live if we live among them, if we live among the Gentiles. And proximity also matters because when God sends people, He doesn't send them solo. He sends them together. Jesus sends out the 72 together. God tells us uh, all throughout the New Testament that the church is a sent collective. In fact, more often than not, when we are reading in the New Testament and we see the word you, it's not written about you by yourself. It's written about y'all, all of us in the Texan translation. Our proximity to one another And our proximity to those whom the Lord has sent us to matters. Jesus didn't commute from heaven. We shouldn't commute for ministry. We are sent to the people among whom we live. But here's the thing, longevity matters too, right? And this is the the hardest part. Nobody's, Nobody's really throwing up any complaints about me saying we should live close to one another especially when we live in the best neighborhood in the city. Right? Nobody's making complaints about that. But when, but when I say, hey, you know what? You should consider living here long term. When I say, hey, maybe that uh, promotion for you in Denver is something you need to take off the table for the glory of God in Houston, that's when we start to get a little uncomfortable. Right? And now, wait, wait, wait a minute. Stepping on toes. But here's the thing. This is just, uh, practically speaking, this makes sense. And I think spiritually speaking, this makes sense, right? Companies with huge turnover are seen negatively for two reasons, right? They're seen in a negative light for two reasons. Why? First reason, too much turnover means you're always training new people, which means you are less productive. That people aren't actually doing what they need to be doing because they're busy being trained to do what they need to be doing. But they're also seen negatively because if there's a lot of turnover, there's sort of an implication that there is a hostile work environment, that there are reasons that people do not want to be there, to live there, to work there, right? Simple. Well, I would argue that the same thing is true of the church, that when we hop from church to church, we're communicating something. Not only is that church experiencing the pain of we have to train people in what it looks like to do ministry in this context, to have people fold in underneath the leadership and the vision of that church for the glory of God in that neighborhood, in the ways that God has called them to do it, that we can't ever get any forward momentum. Or two, people go, man, something weird is happening at that church. Or just, you know what, nobody really cares to be there very long term. It communicates something. The church is not dissimilar. But I think more importantly, and again, theologically speaking, right? In 1 Peter chapter 2, it tells us that, that the people among whom we live will see our good deeds. And that word is plural. And it's plural for a reason. Nobody's impressed with the one time that you serve them. Right? That doesn't take a whole lot. But if you spend years serving and giving of yourself for the sake of the people around you, brothers and sisters, that does not go unnoticed. 
No, in fact, it's compelling. In fact, it's compelling to the degree that First Peter tells us that when people see that, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. People, people are on a search for shalom, and it can only be offered to them in Jesus. I want to read some more from Jeremiah 29, some that we didn't read earlier as we come to a conclusion. In verses 8 and 9 of, of Jeremiah 29, it says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, right? So he's just given them the command to seek the welfare of the city. And then he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them declares the Lord. Here's what, here's what Israel wants, right? They're in exile. They want to go home. That's it. They want to go back to, to shalom. They don't want to cultivate shalom. They just want to be in it, right? That's what they want. And God sends them a warning. He says, listen, there will be prophets. There will be diviners. There will be those among you who are going to offer you a shortcut into that shalom. They're going to offer you a shortcut to the peace and plenty of God. Just remember, I did not send them. Just remember, I did not send them. Right, so what's God saying? He's saying, listen, you're going into exile. I'm sending you there. I'm sending you with a purpose. But just know that you're going to be tempted, that people are going to come and tell you that there are shortcuts into the peace of God. There's shortcuts into coming home. And those people, I didn't send them. And what they're telling you is not true. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to know that the American dream is for us a false prophet. It is offering us a shortcut into the peace and plenty of God. But it's a lie. And God did not send the American dream for you. He sent His Son. And listen, this is... <laughs> This feeling, this desire to be reinstated, this desire to experience the, the peace and plenty of God in the presence of God is not something that Jesus cannot empathize with us on. You see, Jesus himself was exiled from the kingdom of heaven when he took upon himself flesh to dwell among us. He was sent by God the Father, guess what, for the shalom of the people to whom he was sent. And during his exile, Satan came as a false prophet, and he tempted him with all of creation. He said, look, all of this can be yours. I'll give it all to you if you just step over to my side. Jesus has offered a shortcut, but Jesus rejects him, knowing God did not send you. Satan. Jesus is captivated by a greater vision, a greater purpose, a greater reality. And so he does not listen to what it is that Satan is offering, right? I think some of us 
need the same fortitude. Some of us need the same captivating vision of this return to home and to shalom that simply cannot be offered by the American dream, that simply cannot be offered by a particular location. Now, for some of us, our false prophet is as simple as a mountain range. I just got to live where there's mountains, man. And I get it. Listen, I would, I would love that for uh, many reasons. I just got to live where I don't feel like I'm dying every summer. That, you know. I get it. But listen, by living in Houston, I'm not settling. I'm just trusting that there's going to be mountains in heaven. And I'm trusting that they're going to be infinitely more glorious than the ones that are here because Jesus was offered them and he looked at them and he said, no, there's something better. There's something better to be found. There's something better to behold and a place that is more peaceful to belong in that caused Jesus to look upon all of this stuff that we're so tempted by and so lured by and say, not here, not now. And so this is what God goes on to say in verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord God, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Verse 11, we've, many of us have read this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Two things. First of all, he says, after 70 years... Their exile had a concrete start date and a concrete ending date. The same is true for you. The Lord has numbered each and every one of your days. And so your exile has an exact timing. It is measured to perfection. And it is measured to perfection, get this, for your welfare. For your welfare. Not for evil. And so no matter what the circumstances you're staring into look like, you can know that those circumstances are ordered for an allotted period of time for your welfare and not for evil because God is good. The King James Version translates future and a hope as this, an expected end. I love that, an expected end. This idea of our exile being perfectly measured, leading us to an, an expected end. Let's just think about it in terms of Jesus for a moment, right? The Israelites, their exile was 70 years. Our exile is whatever God has allotted it to be in terms of time. For Jesus, it was 33 years of ministry, but not just that, he was also exiled in the moment upon the cross when God unleashed his wrath sin and death upon him. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But guess what? Jesus' exile only lasted three days. And it led to an expected end, his glorious and great resurrection before the peoples, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where now he reigns and rules over all of creation as the sovereign through whom all things in the universe are held together. This was the crater vision. This was the expected end for Jesus. And we are told by Jeremiah and by 1 Peter 
that there is an expected end for us that is more glorious than anything we could hope to treasure or acquire or accumulate or enjoy in our exile here. Jesus is home. He's seated at the right hand of the Father by virtue of His faithful exile. And by virtue of His faithful exile, we will be brought to the right hand of the Father as well. We will be brought home. It is there that we will experience the shalom, the peace that we are longing for. It is found in the presence of a God that is described as the very Prince of Peace. Brothers and sisters, that is where our hope is. And that is what frees us up to live lives that are characterized by sacrifice among the peoples so that in abstaining from the passions of the flesh, in keeping our conduct honorable, the Gentiles will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is why we are this church and that is why we are this church in the neighborhood of Montrose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning again. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together with your people week in, week out, and to proclaim with our words and with our lives um, that you are excellent, that you are worthy of our worship. And we thank you, Father, that it was through Jesus' exile that room for us was made at your table. And Lord, that when we get to celebrate the great homecoming, we will be invited there by virtue, again, of Jesus' exile on our behalf, who willingly stepped out of the kingdom of heaven to move in amongst the peoples of earth so that we might tangibly, visibly see your person, your nature, and your character, and your care for us. And Lord, that he would not only be banished to the kingdom of earth, but that he would be banished into the depths of death so that we might experience life. And Lord, I pray that in that and in the expected end that Jesus met in his glorious resurrection and ascension, we would find confidence and hope for this brief exile, this brief sojourn that we have here for these few years until the day where your glory is made manifest to us in a way that we cannot describe or understand in this moment. Help us, Father, to put away the passions of the flesh. Don't allow these simple, trite, garbage things, Lord, to claim what you have already bought. As we come to your table this morning, Lord, may we repent with great joy that our end is secured through the broken body of Jesus, through the shed blood of Jesus. We have now gained entrance into the people of God, the people to whom and through whom you will reveal yourself. We love you. We praise you for all these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray.